I'll tell you, I've been fielding a lot of comments on the David story, you know, and everybody was jacked like a couple of months ago. And now it's like, man, it is so dark and it is so heavy. And it is. And I think that's why that worship set was so powerful, because it's pointing us to the one who is full of light and full of life, you see. And David does that too. As darker, the darker it gets for David, the brighter is the light of Christ as you see it. And the more valuable is Jesus. And I hope you see that today as we continue with our study of this book of second now, Samuel. And if you were with us last week, you know that the David that we're dealing with now is not the David that we were dealing with a few months ago. A few months ago, we were marveling over David. And here's what we were marveling over. We were marveling over his brilliance. It was amazing. We were marveling over his wisdom. It was uncanny. We were marveling over his moral clarity. David seemed to know all of the time what was right and what was wrong, even when nobody else around him did. It was stunning. We were marveling over the power, the sheer force of a morally righteous life, the way that that empowered him to judge and to be just and to speak and to be heard. He was a force to be reckoned with, insightful like no one else around him. David had this ability like a laser to see through every situation and through every different person. Okay, David has lost all of it. It's gone. He is a shell of his former self. And like, if you're joining us today, you're thinking, okay, so what did I miss? You know, like what happened to David? Sin happened to David. And since sin happened to David, we have been watching its deconstructing its diminishing effects in his life. What happened to David is that uh, five weeks ago in our time, David in a fit of passion. So what does that tell you about the strength of passions? If it can overrun David, what, what might it do to me? <laughs> what might it do to you? David in a fit of passion took Bathsheba, forcibly incidentally took Bathsheba, the wife of a man named Uriah, who was himself off fighting in David's army while David was back home. And he committed adultery with her. And then to compound his error, once he discovered that she was pregnant as a result of this adultery, he then had Joab, the commander of his army, put Uriah to death in a way that everybody thought he just died in battle. Sin happened to David. And then sin happened in the lives of David's two oldest sons. And not different kinds of sins. No, no, no. The same kind of sin. Parenting is a scary thing, isn't it? So then just as David forcibly took Bathsheba and committed adultery with her, Amnon, the crown prince of Israel, the oldest son of David, the would-become-the-next-king guy, lusted after and then forcibly took his half-sister, Tamar. And then Absalom, the second oldest son of David, the next in line for the throne, and the full-blooded brother of Tamar was so offended by that, and then he was further offended by the fact that David didn't do a thing about it. And that just ate him up. He's a patient man. He's a calculating man. He's a wicked man. And he put together his plan by which, just as David had had Joab execute Uriah, Absalom had his servants execute Amnon. And then Absalom left town. He had it all planned out. He went to stay with his grandparents, the king and queen of Geshur. It was a political marriage, his mother and David. So he had somewhere to go, and it was somewhere nice. So he went 
over there. He stayed there for three years. And here's why. Because it took three years for Joab, the commander of David's army, to convince David to finally allow the crown prince of Israel to come back from exile. But when he returned, he did not return with a heart full of love for his dad. He returned with a heart full of hate for his dad, a heart full of contempt for his father. He hated his father for failing, for failing to avenge the honor of his sister. He hated his father for having to spend, you know, three years being persuaded to allow him to come back. And then even once he came back, he didn't let him see him. You remember that? And then he had to be further persuaded before Absalom could even come into his presence. And I think he looked at his father, who is this empty shell of his former self, and saw all of the incompetencies that have now replaced all of the competencies, and he looked at himself. And what is Absalom? He at least appears to be very competent. He's been identified for us as the most handsome man in all of Israel. He grew his hair, which was the symbol of his glory, and every year he would cut his hair which is a symbol of defeat, and yet he would turn that into glory. How? He would take it and he would weigh it in a scale and then impress everybody by how much hair he could grow in a year. He's very calculating. He's very cunning. He's very skillful. In many ways, he's very competent. He is a great politician, as we'll see today. And he sees the incompetencies of his father. He's inept. He's old. He's... He's all of these things that Absalom, at this point, isn't. And I think he hates his father for that, for the fact that his father is even still alive. And so Absalom, who again has proven his patience in the past, instead of being patient and simply waiting for his father to die, he's nearing the end of his life, and then he would become the next king, Absalom would, but instead of doing that, that's not enough. He hates his father too much for that. Absalom, as we're going to see today creates a conspiracy by which he drives his father off the throne of Israel and by which he seeks his life. And so the father who brought life to the son will be rewarded by a son who seeks to bring death to the father. And as we watch his conspiracy unfold this morning, here's what I want you to start doing. I want you to make a little mental checklist. And what I want you to put on the list are all the things that David loses today. As we move through the story, we'll hit a loss, just put it on your list. Then we'll hit another one, put it on your list. We'll hit another one, put it on your list. And remember, we're putting it on a list of things that's already pretty long and substantial. So David, before we even get to this story, has lost, again, all of his core competencies. There's a sense in which he's lost himself. He is a shell of his former self. Look, that's not a little loss. That's a really big deal. He lost the son that was born to Bathsheba as a result of their adulterous union. He died in his infancy. Loss. He lost Amnon, his oldest son, crown prince of Israel, and he lost him to the hand of his other son, the next crown prince of Israel. Oh, and he also lost Amnon after finding out, first of all, that in the heart of Amnon were the same sins that were in the heart of David. Just work that through. That's loss upon loss upon loss. He's lost Absalom. Now, he doesn't realize that, which is a stunning testament to just how diminished he is. Like, all this stuff is going to go on in the story today, and, you know, all the way through the story, like, I'm reading it this week, and I'm thinking, does David not see any of this? This is not done in a corner. This isn't hidden in the dark. 
This isn't done somewhere that, you know, is concealed. No, this is open. This is obvious. This is, you've got to be kidding me. Are people not coming to David and going, hey, um, do you have any idea what your son is doing? So either he doesn't see it at all, or he doesn't listen, or he sees it, he listens, and he has no idea what to do. He's completely incapacitated. He's lost Absalom. He's lost Tamar. I mean, what kind of a relationship do you think they had when he did nothing? What about all the other women in his life? I'm thinking he's a bit of a bachelor at this point. Loss upon loss upon loss. It's like ever since the fall of David, God has been coming to David and saying, okay, I'm taking this away from you. And then I'm taking this away from you. And then I'm taking this away from you and this away from you and this away from you and this away from you. And we get to the story today and it's like, I'm taking this and this and this and this and this. And he leaves David with pretty much nothing. And David does not run from him. And David does not get angry at him. And David does not become bitter toward him and resentful toward him. He does not turn away from him. But as we'll see, he turns toward him. King David will teach us a very valuable lesson, I think, today, if we're open to it. And that is that even if God removes absolutely everything from your life except for him, he's enough. He's enough. So we pick up our study today, 2 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 1 where we read this, that after this, meaning after Absalom's three-year, guys, exile, and then return, Absalom's conspiracy kicks into effect. Part one of the conspiracy, Absalom went out and he got himself a chariot. This is a custom-made kind of Maserati-like chariot. This is a, I'm I'm an ancient Near Eastern king kind of chariot. Nobody around anywhere within a hundred miles has this kind of chariot, chariot. He got himself the chariot of chariots is the idea. And a team of horses is the point. And 50 men, now imagine that, to run before him everywhere he went. That's not done in a corner, is it? This isn't happening in the dark, right? I mean, you want to talk about causing a commotion and a fuss and a, my goodness, he already is handsome. He is already young. He's already strong. He's already calculating. He's already well-spoken and well-educated. And now he even looks the part. And is that not the whole point? Absalom wants to be the king and he understands that the hearts of men are moved by images. So he gives the people of Israel, the image of him as a king and as a greater king even than his father. See, the ancient Near Eastern pagan kings rode around like this. Saul didn't do this. David didn't do this. Oh, he's far more regal appearing and he's awful inside. He looks good, but he's poisonous. But he presents himself as greater than his father, not just in the way that he looks, but then also in the way that he governs. Because he gets up, chariot, horses, men run all around the town. And then it says, and Absalom used to rise early in the morning. Now, why is that significant? Because early in the morning was the time of justice in Israel. It was the time of day when the king heard his cases, his legal cases. 
And so then picture this, people from all over the nation of Israel, all 12 tribes would travel to Jerusalem. That's not a small thing. It's not like they got in the car and drove over. They didn't take a train. They didn't take a plane. They walked. They rode a donkey or something. This is a major inconvenience. I'm leaving everyone and everyone behind. It's going to take me a couple of weeks, but I'll be back. I'm going to walk the whole way for the most part because I'm so passionate about my case, and so far all the lower courts have failed me. So I am appealing to the king. Surely he will A, hear me, and B, he above all people will know what justice is. So they would come from all over the place in the time of day that David heard his cases early in the morning. So where's Absalom? By the gate. He would rise early in the morning with his beautiful chariot that everybody wanted to take pictures with, and he would do selfies with the passerbys, you know, and all of his men, you know, and they were all there, and he looks amazing, and he's regal, and he's this majestic king, and he would very strategically go and early in the morning stand beside the way of the gate that all of these people would then have to pass through before they got in to see the king. And when any man, be he the plaintiff or the defendant, in whatever the dispute happened to be, he doesn't care about justice, guys. He doesn't care, but he presents himself as though he does and his father doesn't. When any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him before he passed through the gate to bring his dispute to the king, and he would say to him something very strategic, so calculated. He would say, from what city are you? And when he, the man who's, you know, walked 85 miles to get a hearing before the king would say, all right, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel. And I think what that means is when he would identify himself as being from a tribe other than the tribe of Judah, which is David's tribe. So I identify myself as coming from the tribe of Benjamin or something, something other than the tribe of Judah. Absalom would first say to him, see, your claims are good and right. So it was right of you to come all this way. It was right of you to make this effort and make plans and leave everything behind your servants and do all this stuff and walk 85 miles and blood, sweat, and tears and through the storms and the whatever. I understand why you are so jazzed about your cause. You have a great cause implication, and if I were king, I would rule in your favor. But here's the problem. You're not from Judah. And if you're not from the tribe of Judah, well, not only will the king not see you, so thanks for trying, but... There is not even a man designated by the king to hear your case. So how does that make you feel about David, Mr. 85-mile walker? That's a one way. Now, you got to go back. And what do you say when you get back? Oh, you're going to the king. Hey, you know what? Just stay home. Not worth it. He's not going to hear you if you're not from Judah. He's dividing 11 tribes away from his father. And then even the tribe that, well, is from Judah, so, hey, I'm from Judah. Well, that's great. Your case is phenomenal. And the guy you're going against, his case is phenomenal. Listen, don't you guys talk to each other. Just go see the king so that at least one of you will come back wishing I was the king. It's brilliantly wicked. It's utter deception. And then Absalom, who looks the part like nobody else, would say to these people, Oh, that I were judge in the land, because if I were, then every man with a dispute or cause in the tribe of Judah and in all of the other tribes of Israel as well might come to me as opposed to my father 
And unlike my father, I would give him justice. What a guy. But it gets even worse. He's the consummate politician. Listen to this. And whenever a man came near to pay him homage, now why would he do that? Because he looks like a king. So he would bow before him is the idea. Whenever somebody would do that from one of these tribes, any one of these tribes, instead of simply allowing that man to bow before him and treating him as a subject, he would treat him as a brother. But insincerely, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and lift him up as the point and and kiss him like the kiss of Judas. It's a lie, but it's calculated to win his heart. And all of this false flattery works. It says, and thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment, and so Absalom what? Because it's a very significant thing, and it goes into the lost category that we're building for David today. It's huge. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel. There it is. And David, apparently at least, didn't seem to clue into this. It's crazy. Even though Absalom didn't do this for four days or for four weeks or for four months, we now learn that he did this for four years. And so then at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, this is an outright lie and it's an outright blasphemy. He takes God and employs him in his lie. He feigns piety as a part of his calculating scheme. Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord. And I want to do that, he's saying to his father, in Hebron, which incidentally is where David was anointed to be the next king. So he recreates the ceremony by which David became the king. And even Saul, though not in Hebron. So there will be a feast, same deal. There will be sacrifices, same deal. With David, at least it was in Hebron, so so also for Absalom. Same kind of a deal. Please, Father, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord, and I want to do that in Hebron. And here's why, for your servant vowed a vow while I lived in exile, remember that? At Geshur in Aram, saying that if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Okay, well, here's my question. Why did you wait four years if you're so pious? The lie itself isn't a very good one. But the king doesn't seem to pick up on that. And so he said to him, go in peace. He gives him his benediction, his blessing. And so Absalom arose and he went to Hebron, but Absalom also sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel who are already scandalized by what they perceive to be injustice on David's part and justice on Absalom's part. The the soil has been tilled. He's made them ready for this kind of an announcement. And here's the announcement of the messengers. He says, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, here it is, Absalom is king at Hebron. And they'll all get the point. That's where kings are made. And with, and with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests to this feast, to this sacrifice, to this would-be anointing of a new king, although they go not knowing that that's the point. But David doesn't know that they go not knowing that's the point. See how brilliant that is? These are 200 of the most prominent citizens in the city of Jerusalem. 
200 of the most wealthy and influential and powerful and well-connected people, probably in the whole of the nation. And they all go with Absalom to Hebron. And David will now, in a minute, get word that Absalom has been proclaimed king in Hebron. And what David is going to think is that all of these people went with him for the purpose of making him king. That's overwhelming. It's pretty, pretty amazing. It's quite a plan. And so then with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence, we're now told, and they knew nothing of Absalom's conspiracy. But again, that's not how it would have sounded to David. And so while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he also, and this is the deal maker right here. I mean, this is it. This is the key card. He sent for Ahithophel, the Gelanite, who, by the way, was Bathsheba's grandfather. And it was also David's most insightful and influential and respected counselor. We learn next week in the next chapter that the advice, the counsel of Ahithophel was compared, blasphemously, I think, to the counsel of God Himself. He sends for Ahithophel from his city of Gilo, and it's very clear that Ahithophel is in on the deal. It may be that Ahithophel planned the whole deal. He's that brilliant. And here's what else Ahithophel will do for these 200 other really prominent citizens, and for that matter, everyone else in the country, as the word gets out that Ahithophel, David's right-hand man, his most trusted advisor himself, has left David. He will give immediate credibility and legitimacy to Absalom as king. I mean, my goodness, if Ahithophel, in his wisdom, has abandoned David in favor of Absalom, why wouldn't I? It's a powerful card. And so then we immediately read, and it's no you know, coincidence, that the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing, which, by the way, if you're keeping a loss category over here, means that the people with David kept decreasing. He's losing them. And now he gets word. It says, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then David wakes up. He gets it. I mean, his world is crashing in on him. There's no question about that. But he's quick to move. Then David said to all of his servants, who, if you did your personal worship, are largely Gentiles. They're not even Israelites. He says to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee. But from what will they now flee? Because we're keeping a lost category. They will flee from the city of David. That's its name. Even today, that part of the city is called the city of David. They will flee from the palace of David, from the throne of David, from the kingship of David, from the powers and comforts and everything else of David, from some of the wives of David, from the prestige of David, from the respect of David. Loss upon loss upon loss upon loss. My goodness, the weight of the loss is crushing. It's unbelievable. Arise and let us flee, or else, let me just tell you about my son, he says. There will be no escape for us from Absalom, who's already murdered his brother, so what do you think he'll do to us then? Go quickly, he says, lest he overtakes us quickly, which is what he fears, and bring down ruin on us and strike the whole city with the edge of the sword. He spares the city by leaving. It's very selfless. He's in a fortress, you see but he will not let the city experience this. 
And so then David and all of his servants flee from the city of Jerusalem. And then in verse 30, we see a picture of their flight. And I want you to imagine this. This is the once exalted king, guys. This is the great David, but on a very different day. After loss upon loss. It says in verse 30, but David, who, whose palace overlooks the Kidron Valley. David walked down, you see, into the Kidron Valley. He crossed the weighty Kidron, this little brook. And then he began to ascend up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. It's all very tight. It's close. It's not a big valley. He begins to ascend up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, a sign of great poverty and humility, and with his head covered, a sign of great mourning. A shattered man. And all of the people who were with him covered their heads. And they too went up, weeping as they went. And then it was told to David, and it's sort of like this is the final blow. (laughs) Like, I thought it couldn't get any worse, and then you drop this last little, well, big bomb on me. As he ascends the Mount of Olives, what's happening geographically is, is... following what's happening in the story, he's about to reach the height of his despair in some sense, of his devastation. And this is it. It was told to him that Ahithophel, again, whose counsel is compared to the counsel of the Lord, who brings immediate credibility to Absalom, who seals the deal in the minds of so many in this conspiracy, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David, for the first time since chapter 12, prays. He says, Oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. But that's not all that he says. And if you did your personal worship and you worked through this passage five times this week, you might be thinking, yeah, actually it is. But it's not. Because on this barefoot road, on this tear-stained road, on this sorrow-filled road, on this road of crashing in, David also prays Psalm 3. And we know that because he tells us that this is where it was written. It was written on this road. And so I want you to hear the prayer which reflects the heart of this man whose world is caving, who has almost nothing but who does have the Lord because it's like he finds him again. And everything's different, even though the circumstances haven't changed. Psalm 3 begins with this superscription. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Why does it say that? I mean, why did David add that? Why is that also part of the psalm and part of the scripture, which incidentally it is? Because David wants you to know where it was written and when and under what circumstances and conditions. It's huge to know that. And then he gives us the first two words of verse 1, which I think are the most important words in the whole psalm. It just says simply, O Lord. And I think that's so important because it gives us the posture of this man's heart. It tells us very specifically who or what David is trusting in and treasuring more than anything or anyone else in the midst of this circumstance. David says, O Lord. He doesn't say, oh, military advisors. He doesn't say, oh, members of my cabinet, 
who may be still on my side, but I'm not really sure. I'm going to have to have you padded down, you know, like airport security before you come into my tent, because who knows who might still be in the camp of Absalom. I mean, if I lost Ahithophel, good grief. Who can I trust? He doesn't say, oh, members of the army who may still be loyal to me. Oh, it's all taken away. It's gone. David says, oh, Lord. And as I got to that part this week, I thought, what do I say? Like in the midst of the crisis, what do you say? Oh, lawyer. Oh, doctor. Less laughter. Oh, financial advisor. Oh, pastor. Oh, counselor. And and here's the thing. In the midst of a crisis, you should avail yourself of everything and everyone that you possibly can, legitimately, righteously. God may use those things that He has providentially put into your life and those people to be the instruments of deliverance that He affects then in your life. David certainly does that. Did you do your personal worship? What happens as he's walking up the ascent? He's cruising along slowly, weeping up the barefoot road. Loyal and significant people come out to David. The priests come out to David with the ark of the Lord, and and they say, we're going with you. And he says, you're not coming with me. You need to stay here. Here's how you can show your loyalty to me. Stay here, spy on Absalom, send me information. Hushai, the archite, comes out to David and he says, I'm going with you. David says, no, 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 no. You've been my counselor. I want you to go back into town. Here's how you show loyalty to me. You pretend to be my son's counselor. You just tell him your loyalty lies with whoever the king happens to be and then listen for whatever Ahithophel says and say the opposite as best you can. He doesn't throw away these other things, these other people, but he doesn't trust in them either. You see, I think that loss, for all of the other things that it is as well, is an invitation of a sort. And what it is an invitation for us to do, it is for us to trust in God and to treasure Him above anything and everything else. It's an invitation to discover that, you know what? Even if He is all that we have, He's enough. So David says, O Lord, and then he says, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. In fact, he says, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him. In God, translation, not even God can get David out of this one. I mean, his foes are too many and they're too strong. So then who are your foes? What are your foes? It can be a what. I think some of us know the answer to that immediately. It's like, hey, you know, how much time do you have? I've got a list. I can give you names. I can give you conditions. I can give you challenges that I have. I can. It's very simple for me to define that, but some are like, I don't really know the answer to that. So I'll ask it differently. What is the Lord removed from you? And where have you gone in your heart? Because again, I think it's an invitation to learn to trust God, to treasure God. That's what loss is. That's what loss does for David. What has it done for you? Has it moved you to faith or fear, to worship or worry, to gratitude or to resentment, bitterness, anger, or any other long list of stuff like that that poisons your soul? 
Has it moved you to devotion or despair, to prayerfulness or to prayerlessness? Because I think the barefoot road, though you wouldn't choose it, and you certainly wouldn't want to travel it twice, it's a good road in the rearview mirror if it's a road that leads you ultimately to trust in and to treasure Jesus then it's a good road. It's one of those things in life where, you know, you kind of get to the other side of it and you think to yourself, okay, I really did not have a lot of fun doing that and I I wouldn't choose to do that again and, oh, dear God, please don't make me. But because of what has come of it, I wouldn't change it. There is story after story after story after story in this room of people who would say that about a variety of different things that were suffering in their life. And so David says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me and are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. He's looking at his circumstances the way that everyone else is looking at them, at least for a second, and going, this is the condition that I'm in, and now everything changes. And it changes right here with his change of focus. He says, but you, so now he's turned to God, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head, which means what? It means that the turning point in this crisis does not occur when Absalom rejects the advice of Ahithophel, though he will. It does not occur when David's armies defeat, miraculously, the armies of Absalom, though they will. It does not occur when Absalom dies and David is then received back and welcomed back to his city and his palace and his throne and all of the comforts of David though that will happen. The turning point happens on the barefoot road. It happens while the world is crashing. As he turns his focus to the Lord and confesses by faith that you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I've lost everything else. You've taken it away from me. And yet I shall confess that you're enough and live accordingly. Listen to this. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And then he says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. And now get this because it totally gets me. I lay down and slept, which is the picture of a man at peace. All right. Now, the reason that gets me is because I covet that. I'm a lot better than I used to be, but I'm not going to lie. I know what it means to stare at the ceiling. I know what it is to look at the clock and it's one o'clock and look again and it's two o'clock and look again and it's three o'clock and look again and it's four o'clock. I know what it is to get up and have a snack and turn on the television. But usually what I do is I just lay there angrily going, no, I'm going to stay here till I go asleep. And then now it's five o'clock. Much better than I used to be. I've never experienced anything like what this guy is experiencing. My goodness, lay down and go to sleep? They might kill me in my sleep. Like who's on my side and who isn't really? This is the most well-calculated, strategically brilliant plan ever. I mean, it's incredible. I lay down and slept, he says, and I woke again. And here's why. For the Lord sustained me. He protected me in my utter passivity, in my rest. There's a supernatural God at work, guys, and he works. 
He's real. And so then David says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around, and unjustly and unfairly, in deception, but nevertheless. Here's who he trusts in. He says, Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing, he says, be on your people. And here's the deal. After loss upon loss upon loss upon loss upon loss upon loss upon loss, and it just keeps going, David yet knows that he's blessed, and why? Because he belongs to the Lord. And so do you through faith in Jesus. And for all of the other things that can and will change in every single one of our lives, that will not change. He is the king who delivers, be it in this life or in the next, and he gets to pick, and his decision, his wisdom is better. So rest in that. And he is the God who restores, be it in this life or in the next, and his restoration is far greater than anything that we can imagine. He is the God who vindicates, be it in this life or in the next, and his vindication is not something we're going to be disappointed with. He is the great king. And in David's darkness, he shines all the brighter, and it's true for us too. So let me ask you again, who or what are your foes? Or ask differently, what has the Lord taken away from you? And where is your heart at? Is it running away? Is it running toward? Is it angry? Or is it submissive? Is it hard? Or is it open to what the Lord would do? Has it moved you to faith or fear, worship or worry, gratitude or bitterness, devotion or despair, prayerfulness or prayerlessness? Because the barefoot road is a great road if, it's a big if, like David, it drives you to trust and to treasure Jesus. And that's its invitation. So do that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we do praise you. Um, for the light of the world who is Christ. God, that we might experience His light in the darkness of the world in which we live, personally, individually, corporately, as families, in the city, in our nation. Lord, there is cause for hope, even when everyone looks at us and says, you know what? There's no cause for hope. Hope has a name, and His name is Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to him, that you would blind us with his brilliance, that you would warm us with his light, that you would change us from the inside out, that you would take hard and resentful and bitter and angry hearts and break them, that you would make us soft and pliable in your hands. Lord, that you would bless us as your people, and that you would give us by faith the realization that the greatest treasure in the universe is ours in Christ. And if or really when we're divested of everything else, and we will be in death in the end, we have heaven's greatest treasure and all the treasures of heaven as well in him. 
Do these things for your glory and for our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.